Good morning, everyone. My name's Raya. Um, I help serve in the kids' ministry and hospitality also. Um, so I'll be reading today from the Gospel of Luke. So firstly, from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and then Luke chapter 24, verses 49, 44 sorry, to 49. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have a, Bibles out, up the back table near the entrance, um, and you can keep that if you would like to. So let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst, among us, just as they were handed out down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are, I, you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Hey, good morning again, everyone. Uh, let me begin with a word of prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, again, we, we ask that you will speak to us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we ask that you will open our minds as you did to the disciples, not just so that we won't just understand, but we will believe and submit our lives to you. This we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, as we said, we are in the middle of a very short series. Uh, we've titled it uh, Tough Questions because we want to we wanna look at some of the biggest questions and objections against uh, the Christian faith. And today we are investigating the very source of truth in the Christian faith, which is the Bible. Uh, we can say to someone, you know, God loves you because the Bible tells, you, tells us so. Uh, but the argument will be, well, how do you know that the Bible is true? See, the, the teachings, the doctrines, the messages of, the, of, the, of Christianity stands or falls in the reliability of the Bible. Uh, and here's what's kind of interesting, that the Bible is not, it's not primarily a book of instructions on how to live your life. Uh, it's really, if, if you've read the Bible before, uh, it's mainly a, a historical document. Uh, it's full of stories, it's full of events, uh, and if you look at those stories, it's, it's marked with locations and times and so on. And no other major religion relies on that. Uh, not even the Quran. The Quran, if you look at the Quran, there's, there's some stories in the Quran, but they don't specify the time, the location, and so on. And so if you look at the Bible, it's either the stories in the Bible are true, that it did happen, or not. And if it's true, then you should seriously consider its teachings. See, for example, like either the resurrection really happened, 
or the resurrection was fabricated. You cannot say, oh, it doesn't matter if Jesus really rose from the dead or not, as long as he lives in your heart. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter if the, the crucifixion or the resurrection really happened, as long as you somehow believe in, in your heart that, you know, that Jesus somehow came back to life. But see, it does matter. Many people would say that, you know, there's so many things in the Bible that you shouldn't believe because, especially not literally, because, you know, it was written so long ago. And so today, I just want to give you three reasons why you can trust the Bible or at least consider, consider, consider it to be trustworthy. And the reasons are these. One, because it's historically verifiable. Two, it is culturally, always culturally relevant. And thirdly, it speaks personally that it will always be confronting to us. Right? So historically verifiable, culturally relevant, and thirdly, it's personally confronting. Okay? And let's have a look at these. So firstly, historically verifiable. Now there are so many things that we can talk about that can help verify the, the historicity of the Bible. Uh, I can give you what scholars say that it's external evidence, which means that it's, these are evidences, evidences outside the Bible. For example, archaeology. We can talk about archaeology, the ancient cities, events, and people mentioned in the Bible. It can all be backed up by archaeological evidence. Uh, and that's why you can go to Israel, you can go to Turkey, and look at all these historical sites in the Bible. Right? We also have non-historical records outside of the Bible, right? There's a lot of kind of history outside of the Bible that can attest to, what's, to what happened in the biblical stories. Like, you know, we have Roman historical records, we have Jewish writings and so on. Even though they're not Christians, right? We have non-Christian historians able to confirm some of the things that happened in the Bible. We can also talk about some evidence of how the biblical records or the manuscripts that were, that, that were passed on, that were rewritten, that it was not altered throughout the years as a lot of people you know, claim to be. That the, the, the earliest manuscripts that we have are very similar to the, old, to the newest manuscripts that we have. Now, I can give you all those external evidence, but I tend to find those ones a little bit boring. So I will give you what I believe are better evidence, and there are the internal evidence of the Bible that you can see in the Bible itself. So here's some of them. Here's three of them that I want you to at least consider. Firstly, the New Testament records were written way too early to be invented. Let me explain. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? These are the biblical stories about Jesus. They were written at least 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. So let's say... Jesus died around 30 to 33 AD, and scholars date that the written records were about 70 to 90 AD, and Paul's letters were even earlier. They're, they're dating it about 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. Now, this is very important because let me illustrate, let me illustrate this. Let's just say if you were around 20 years old in 30 AD when Jesus died, by the time the Gospels or the letters of Paul were written and they were circulating in public, let's say that's around 70 AD, it means that you will only be 60 years old. 
it means that the New Testament records were circulating in public when there were still lots of eyewitnesses alive that can verify what happened, right? See, if someone writes a biography of me, even after 50 years I, I pass away, right? Someone can still verify what they say in the biography is, is either true or not, which means that they, can, they can't just make up stories when they are eyewitnesses still alive at the time. That's why in our reading in the Gospel of Luke, look at how Luke kind of constructs this, 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 um, this gospel. He begins by saying, Many have taken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, so while we're still alive, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Luke is saying that there are many stories, there are many eyewitnesses going around, and he's saying, let me do my research and investigate myself and put them all together in one document for you so that it can be clear and be concise and certain. Again, this is very important because it is saying that the stories and the records that were going around were verifiable at that time. They have people still alive to authenticate the historicity of the event. And all Luke is doing is verifying and putting all the stories together. In a way, it's a historical research. That's what, that's what he's doing there. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that a certain man from Cyrene, whose name is Simon, and the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, these names are not just there to make the story sound nicer, right? And we'll talk about this later on. The reason why the author included names and places like this throughout the gospel is because it's a way for the readers to actually check and access these people in the story. What Mark is saying, if you want to know more about what happened, go to Cyrene and ask for Simon. And if you can't find Simon, it's, he's, the, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. See, it's, it's a marker in the story. Another example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes, For what I received, for what I, received I passed on to you as a, first, as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the thir third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. What's Paul doing there? He's saying, if you don't believe me, there are 500 people that saw Jesus alive and well. Some of them have died already, but most of them are still alive. Go check for yourself. You cannot make up a story about someone when eyewitnesses are still alive because they will just completely discount the story and Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. But instead, the story was confirmed, it was verified, and it was proven to be true. And that's why it kept going and kept strong from the very beginning. 
Secondly, second sub-point, the stories in the New Testament are too counterproductive to be fabricated. Or to put it another way, if the stories are made up, it doesn't seem to fully support the Christian movement. For example, um, you know, some people would claim that the early leaders of the church, they just made up stories about Jesus in order to promote this Christian movement. But let me ask you, if you are starting a new religion, you're starting a new, brand new religion, and you really want to follow, you want people to follow this religion that you've created, what would you include in the story? How would you promote the movement? Remember, one of the biggest opposition of Christianity at that time, of the Christian faith, was Judaism. And one of the most important elements of Judaism is circumcision. But have you ever noticed that nowhere in the Gospels did Jesus ever mention circumcision? If you are a leader of a new movement and you're just making it up, wouldn't you include a story of Jesus saying something against circumcision so that it will, it will launch and it will oppose Judaism? But see, they didn't add that. Why? Because it never happened. If you are promoting Jesus as the, as the promised Savior who, who willingly died on the cross, why would you add the story of Jesus praying in the garden and, want, and not wanting to go through that suffering? Why would you add him praying on the cross, complaining that God abandoned him? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, these things will just look, make Jesus look weak and scared and, and a failure. So you wouldn't kind of add those up. You'll make, him, you'll make Jesus more valiant and more fearless, like most ancient myths. Or why would you say that women were the first witnesses of the resurrection in a society where women have such low status that their testimony is not accepted as evidence in court? It will just make more sense if you make male witnesses at that time. Or even better, you'll make community leaders as, as the witnesses to authenticate the resurrection, to have a better security of the story. But they put the women as the first eyewitnesses in the story. Why? Because that is what happened. Or if you are Peter, you're the leader of this, of this new church. Or if, or if you're any of the disciples, and if you're making up the story, why would you invent a story of yourself denying Jesus? It just doesn't make sense. Or the disciples constantly bickering on who's the greatest in the kingdom. If I was making it up, I, it's more reasonable to make myself more sound, sound and look a lot better in the narrative. The, the stories in the New Testament are too counterproductive to be invented. It wasn't written specifically for the advancement of the movement. Instead, it's an eyewitness account. If someone was making it up, they would have tried to sell it better. If you were trying to get this fake religion off the ground, you'll try to make it sound more promising. But instead, we are given what actually happened. Thirdly, our third sub-point, the literary form of the Gospels are too detailed at that time to be legends. You know, fiction writing only started when, it really just kind of started when the printing press started around the 16th century. Um, prior to that, we have myths. We have very, very few myths and legends. We have King Arthur in the Round Table, for example, uh, in the 12th century. We have Beowulf in the 9th century and a few others. But if you look at 
all these old myths and, and fantasies and, and legends, their writing style is very different from fiction writing today. Beowulf, for example, they have, like, it has very small details of storytelling. It's very general, it's very poetic, and it's very inspirational. It doesn't use a lot of dialogue or intricate details about the story. Fiction writing really started in the 7th and 18th century, where we have Jane Austen, Mark Twain, Charles Dickens, and, and all them. That's when fiction writing really started. Now, if you read the Gospels, we have very high detailed accounts. For example, Mark 4. In Mark 4, it says that we're told that Jesus slept at the back of the boat on a cushion. John 21, we are told that when Peter saw Jesus, he was 90 meters out and he jumped off the boat and the other disciples caught 153 fish. John 8, it was recorded that Jesus was drawing on the ground when people were accusing this, this adulterous woman. What we have is very high detailed description of events. And often these details are not really relevant to the plot at all. I mean, they could have said that Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat, but why would you add that he was sleeping on a cushion? They, they could have said that they caught a lot of fish, but why make up a number of 153? It doesn't make sense. Why add that? Jesus drawing on the ground has no relevance to the story of the adulterous woman. If this was fiction writing, you wouldn't bother with the small details that doesn't really help the storyline, story unless they were added because the person telling the story remembers all the small details. See, if I ask you to tell me about your wedding 10, 20, or even 50 years ago, I bet you can remember the food you ate, you can remember the music that you danced to, the, the clothes that you were wearing, See, our memories are, we can remember small details during very important events. That's how we naturally retell our experience. And remember, they could not have made this up because we have no evidence of fictional writing like this as early as the time of Jesus. And also consider that the people writing the story, they're fishermen. They're not, they didn't study journalism or creative arts. All they were doing is they're retelling what they have remembered. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the, uh, he, he's a great author, but really his background is, is ancient writings. And he said this in, in one of his books. He said that I have been reading poems, romances, vision literatures, uh, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that none of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two He's talking about the Bible. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or this is news, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative writing. So basically, C.S. Lewis is saying that it's either this is historical report or someone 2,000 years ago Manage, how, manage to learn how to write modern-day fiction literature. Now, you might say, okay, given that the stories in the Bible are true, how can you account for all the things that are so primitive in the Bible, like polygamy, the slavery in the Bible? Well, so our second point, you can trust the Bible because it is always culturally relevant. 
So again, a lot of people think that there are so many things in the Bible that doesn't apply to us now because it was written in a very different time and different culture and so on. Uh, for example, uh, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, during uh, Q&A in ABC, he said, uh, they're talking, I think they were talking about homosexuality at that time. They were arguing about it. And then he goes to give an example. He says, the Bible also says that slavery is a natural condition because St. Paul said it in the New Testament, slaves, be obedient to your masters. And therefore, we should all have fought for the Confederacy in the U.S. Civil War. I mean, for goodness sake, the human condition and social condition change. So he's saying that you can't accept everything in the Bible because if you do, then you'll be supporting slavery. And the Bible, you know, it was written back then and our society have changed now. See, people assume that just because it is mentioned in the Bible that the Bible somehow supports it. But my second point is that the Bible doesn't just try to blend in or adapt to its culture back then. But in fact, if you study the Bible, you will often see that it's confronting, it's always confronting the cultural norm. Let's take polygamy, uh, for example. You know, a lot of people would say, look, I, can't, I cannot accept the Bible as reliable because it promotes polygamy. I mean, look at Abraham, Isaac, King David, Solomon. They're all, they're all polygamists, and so the Bible supports it. Now, it is true that throughout the, New Test, throughout the Old Testament, there, we see lots and lots of cases of polygamy, but it doesn't mean it's, it's condoning it or supporting it. See, it's, it is quite uh, normal during the time and the, the culture back then, but the Bible does not condone it at all. Because if you read carefully the Old Testament, every time, have you noticed that every time you see a, a husband taking in more than one wife, Something bad happens in there, in the story. Every generation that embraces a polygamistic uh, lifestyle, major problem, problems follow in their lives. You'll see problems socially, culturally, spiritually, and relationally happening all the time. So even though it was normal at their time and culture, the Bible is already condemning it from the very beginning. The Bible is already confronting what seems to be normal of their time. This is the same case with the, again, with the treatment of women in ancient times. It is true that women were considered to be inferior to men during that time. But look at the way Christianity confronts the culture. The, the, it shows that the women were, were prominent and crucial during Jesus' ministry. Right? As we said, that they were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. In the book of Acts, we see women having uh, a strong leadership roles in the, in the early church. Jesus is always elevating women during his interaction. And even when Paul wrote, for husbands to love your wife, we think that, oh, that's a very, very nice sentiment. But see, that was a rad radical confrontation of the Roman culture for husbands to sacrificially and wholeheartedly devote themselves to their wife, to one, to one woman. Another one is slavery. When we think of slavery, we think of the 7th century African slavery where children were removed from their, from their parents and, and, and adults were being forced to work. But the way slavery is portrayed in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, it's about a slave being able to choose to, to work for their masters. They're part of the tribe. They're part of the household. household. And they're, they're not imprisoned or they're, they're not mistreated. In fact, there's a lot of rules in the Bible to treat slaves very fairly and very honestly. The Bible 
is confronting culture and showing what a healthy working condition for men and women of different socioeconomic background. So my point is you cannot say that the Bible only appealed to their culture at their time. No, the Bible is always confronting whatever time and culture we're reading it as we read it today. And that's why the Bible is still very relevant and applicable today because the message of the Bible is not time-bound. The Bible speaks to us today as it did back then. Which leads us to our final point. This is why we can trust the Bible. And not just historically, not just culturally, but personally. You can trust the Bible personally because it's, it's personally confronting. You know, most people find it very hard to, to, accept the, to accept the Christian faith, not because it doesn't make sense, but it's because it's confronting how they live. Right? What hinders people from coming into Christian faith is that it confronts their personal freedom because it means that they have to completely change their lifestyle. And see, this is the very reason why we know the Bible is true. The very fact that it confronts our way of living, our lifestyle, our understanding, our person. What I mean is that, you know, how do you know, how do you know that, you, that you have a relationship with someone? Or how do you know that your relationship with someone is going deeper in a, in a, going in a deeper level? How do you know that your relationship is not artificial, but it's, it's a real relationship? See, it's not... It's not so measured with the amount of time that you spend together or, or how happy you are. You know it's a real relationship when the more you know someone, the more you realize your differences in life. It's when they start to annoy you and when they start to really contradict you. See, I have a, I have a relationship with Siri, with my phone. You know, I can ask her what my schedule is. I can tell her what to do, and she does it. I can tell her to stop talking, and she stops. I can tell her to, to compliment me, and she does. But we know that's not a real relationship, not, not, not just because she's not a person, but it's because she doesn't really oppose me. She doesn't contradict me. She only agrees with me. See, some of you want a relationship where the other person will just agree with you all the time. But we know that's not a real relationship because real relationship will have differences. You will, you will confront each other. You will challenge one another. If, if it doesn't, it's either you're, you have an artificial relationship or the person has an artificial intelligence. How do you know the Bible is true? Because behind the Bible is a person, a person who says that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he wants to be in your life. But he doesn't just agree with everything that you think, say, or do. He will confront you, he will challenge you, and he will oppose you out of his love for you. And some of you, you might be reading the Bible, but it's not confronting you. It doesn't challenge you because you're only reading what you want to hear. You're only, hear, you're only hearing what you want to do. There's a lot of things in the Bible that, that should be really challenging your philosophy, your worldview, or your way of life. It should contradict the way you live and the way you think. It should confront your ambitions and your desires. And this is how you know that you're really starting to, to understand the Bible. Because the words doesn't just sound like historical report. It becomes words of relationship. Is the Bible 
challenging your lifestyle? Is the Bible challenging your, your belief system? Is the Bible confronting the, the treasures of your life? If not, then I can tell you, you might not be growing in faith because you are picking and choosing in the Bible to create your own God. Behind the Bible is a perfect, holy, and loving God who, who speaks to imperfect, sinful, and conceited human beings. If you are nitpicking what you want to hear in God's Word, then you don't have a relationship. You have a robot. How do you get a real relationship, an authentic relationship with the, with the author of the Bible? Well, look at the end of the Gospel of Luke as we've read. In Luke 24, as Jesus came back to life, uh, he, he showed himself to his disciples and they couldn't believe that it was him. And he said this to them. And this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything in the Bible must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus tells us that if you want to know him and you want to understand the Bible, you want to understand what he's about, then you need to read the Bible, not, a, not as a rule on how to save yourself, but as a story of how Jesus saved you. It's not a self-help book on how to improve yourself. It is a way God revealing himself through the person of Jesus Christ. See, ultimately, the Bible is confronting you, saying, you are a great sinner needing a great God to save you. And this is the story from beginning to end, how you can find salvation in the Lord Jesus, where you can find healing, restoration, peace, and love through the Lord Jesus. You need to see how every story in every page points back to him saving you. So if you are a Christian and you, and you, you cannot just nitpick a few verses here and there to make yourself feel spiritual and feel a lot better, you need the discipline of study, you need to wrestle with it, and like a real relationship, you need to ask questions and you want to demand answers, you need to confront and be confronted, you need to be challenged and you need to submit. And if you're not a Christian and you're here today with us, would you at least consider the greatest story ever told? investigate for yourself if it is true. Because if it is, then you will find the beauty of its eternal consequences in your life. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this complex but wonderful uh, book that you have given us. It's a way for you to speak to us. It's a way for you to have a relationship with us. So Lord, help us not just to understand it, but see the person behind it. Lord, we pray that as we read, as we uh, as we wrestle with your word, I pray that you will speak to us individually, that you will uh, confront us, uh, confront our sins, confront our ambitions, and help us, O oh Lord, to see uh, Jesus Christ, that we may submit to him. This we pray in his name. Amen.